With every story we hear, listen to, read, or tell, we make basic human connections that help define who we are. Welcome to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast devoted to those stories that tell us who we are when we're in the dark. Listen closely now. The dark is speaking, and the need to be heard never dies. It's time for Home is Where the Haunt is, the portion of our podcast devoted to personal experiences with ghosties and ghoulies. Have a story to share? Send it in to afterwardsstories at gmail.com. We're dying to hear from you. This story comes from Unexplainable Happenings, Chilling True Stories, Volume 4, compiled and edited by Autumn Barnes and Tom Lyons. In a Connecticut suburb, where I spent the entirety of my life leading up to my child's first birthday, weird things began to happen. They were so strange that it propelled me to move far away in hopes of raising my child somewhere safer, which was never a question in the past. The town where we lived was one of the safest, where break-ins and theft were unheard of. I'm talking about a haven where leaving your car unlocked was never a concern. You knew it would remain untouched while you were away. On Halloween of 2010, my close friend Bridget, who lived only two blocks away, woke to something bizarre in her home. Every single door, from the front door to the bedroom doors and everything in between, was painted a vibrant, deep red. I asked her if maybe her kid could be responsible for it, as he was 11 years old and entering a mischievous phase. She claimed to have searched her entire house for a paint bucket or acrylic bottles and couldn't find the source. Her son also swore not to have done it, which she believed because he went to bed before them that night. I thought it was strange, but not too concerning, as I still believed her son could have been the one that did it. They had an alarm system, so it's not like someone could have broken into their home to paint all the doors without awakening them. The following days, two days after Halloween, I walked to my car early in the morning to grab some pastries from the bakery while they were fresh out of the oven. My neighbor across the street had new finishing touches on their house that I couldn't resist noticing. The new red paint on their front door was so vibrant it was impossible to go unnoticed. I took a moment to observe thinking how odd it was before the neighbor walked out of their home. Jeff, they got the front door too, Mrs. Schultz yelled from across the way, seemingly angry at the new exterior. Good morning, Mrs. Schultz, I hollered, pretending I wasn't eavesdropping or staring at their house. Did you hear or notice anything unusual in the area last night? She asked me. Someone painted all our doors red while we were sleeping, and we don't have any security system to find out who did it. No, ma'am, I'm sorry. The same thing happened to my friend on Halloween night, but she didn't catch them either, I informed Mrs. Schultz. Let me know if I can help in any way, I added before hopping into my own car. 
As the week went on, slowly but surely, a new door in the neighborhood was painted bright red one by one. It became the talk of the town, and even the families with security cameras didn't capture evidence of how it happened. Two of my neighbors, Molly and Christy, passed by my house while going for a jog and stopped to talk to me about it, pointing out that it hadn't happened to my home yet. I knew both ladies had outdoor cameras, as many people in the area did, so I asked what the footage caught. Both Molly and Christy's cameras either glitched or ceased to work entirely. Molly stated that, while reviewing the footage in an attempt to bust whoever had done it, the time stamp went from 1 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock within seconds, jumping through time and fast-forwarding in a flash. As the clock hit 3, the camera was functioning again as the time log on the bottom corner of the video kept ticking by the seconds. However, her front door was suddenly red as the time hit 3 o'clock, going from gray to red instantly. Her back door camera footage did the same, revealing the new paint job in a sudden burst, skipping over the hours. Christy's dilemma was similar, except her camera continued to lag as we spoke. She called a security salesman to try and fix it, but he couldn't figure it out. Her footage was frozen at 1 o'clock. What weirded me out the most wasn't precisely that the cameras had stopped working, but that both of their systems glitched simultaneously. Christy and Molly lived down the street from each other and told me their camera systems aren't even from the same company. So somehow, somebody was able to stop them and paint every door in both their homes, all within two hours and miraculously without waking anyone. I figured that more than one person must be committing to this over-the-top prank. That's the only thing that made sense. It was too much work for one individual. Four days later, it happened to my home. On my way out of the bedroom to make coffee, I opened my bedroom door, and that's when I noticed it. To leave my bedroom, you had to pull the door inward, so I pulled it open, revealing its bright red exterior. I woke my husband in a panic to show him the mysterious and unlawful painter had finally entered our home and fulfilled another night of dirty work. Together, we ran around the house, approaching every door in our home, noting that they all had the same new paint job. Even our son's nursery door was red, and the paint job was flawless without a single streak or smear, and it was dry, too, and appeared as if the red doors were factory-made rather than individually painted. Our son, who was an infant at the time, was not a heavy sleeper. He cried every two hours for feeding throughout the night. I'd become so used to this bi-hourly routine that my body would automatically wake to feed him before he could scream. That said, On the night our doors were painted, I didn't wake up once. I slept the most soundly I had since giving birth. I asked my husband if he woke up at any point or heard the baby cry, and he said no. Luckily, our son was unharmed, but I find that unexplainable. With any break-in, you'd assume there would be a disturbance to wake you or at least make a sound-sensitive infant scream. Instead, the opposite happened. We slept soundly and the alarm system we had bought after catching wind of what was happening in our area didn't go off. It's almost like the doors magically changed color on their own. At this point, the red door situation had happened to so many people in town, it became common to drive past homeowners repainting their doors. Each morning, there'd be a new red door and a previously red door now back to its original color. It was absolute mayhem, 
and nobody had evidence to support how this could have been executed. No longer feeling safe in what was considered one of the safest suburbs in Connecticut, my husband and I decided to move. Especially since we had a baby, we refused to reside in a place that was a target for break-ins. We no longer felt secure knowing that every house, including ours, was a free-for-all. After moving, we discovered through old neighbors and friends that the red door craze had ended and a new disturbance arose. Dogs were disappearing. Like the red door situation, the dog vanishings went unexplained and only happened at night. Unfortunately, this was never publicly talked about aside from word of mouth. No news reports aired, no articles surfaced in the local paper or anything that would efficiently spread the word of what was occurring in our hometown. Our former neighbor Molly told me over the phone that she had talked to local journalists hoping the town's story would hit the news, but nothing ever came of it. It's as if there was something bigger, something we weren't supposed to know going on behind the scenes, and they wanted us silent. Hello and welcome to episode 121 of Afterwards Paranormal. I'm your host, Shelby. Did any of you have a paranormal experience as a child? Two-thirds of all Americans say that they did, and I'm one of them. I still remember seeing the funny little white dog thing that ran around our yard at night when I was around five. I watched it through my bedroom window. My parents would come into my room asking, What are you laughing at? I would point to the yard, which by that time, of course, was empty. In our story, The Bridge, by Eleanor Sullestein, three boys encounter something unseen and deadly. Are children more sensitive to the paranormal? Here are some stories that say, Yes, they are. This is from an article called Their Kids, Horrifying Real-Life Ghost Stories by Amanda Tarleton, February 2019. Kids have been known to say some pretty creepy things, especially when it comes to ghosts and paranormal activity. BuzzFeed BuzzFeed asked its community members to share their best stories of the time their own children saw spirits, and the responses were as frightening as you'd imagine. Like the toddler who befriended a family of ghosts. I heard her say, I said stop. So I went in to check on her and asked who she was talking to. She calmly pointed at the AC vent and said, The family who lives in the vents, the little boy, is bothering me. Or the boy who saw his dead great-grandfather. Ever since my little brother could talk, he would tell us about a man he calls Scary, who stands in the, who stands in the corner of his room when the lights are off. Once my brother pointed to a picture of my great-grandfather, whom, who he has never seen or met, and said, look, it's scary. Or the kid with the haunted chair. My son had a rocking chair in his bedroom, and he was really afraid of it. He kept talking about the boy in his chair. This mom added that they were, la- 
This mom added that they later found out a little boy drowned behind their house a very long time ago. She said, I guess he wanted to play with my son. But one of the best, or rather creepiest stories, was one woman's own ghost sighting. When I was a kid, I used to play for hours with someone I thought was an imaginary friend only I could see, she wrote. When her mom asked who it was, the woman said it was her brother, which infuriated her mom. The woman never understood why until years later when she learned that she did, in fact, have a brother, who died a year before she was born. And here's one more from Cora, posted by Emily Marek. When my son was a toddler, he used to stand in front of our couch and babble away. He'd talk all about sorts of things to what I thought was an imaginary friend. One evening I asked him, Who are you talking to? He responded, My buddy. Night after night this went on, and each time I'd ask, he'd respond the same, My buddy. So one night I tried something. I got out a huge photo collage of all the relatives in our family, close and distant, and showed it to him. The moment he saw it, his eyes widened and he motioned to a face, and he motioned to a face saying, That's him. That's my buddy. He was pointing to a picture of my uncle who had died in an automobile accident when I was 16 years old. Is there an explanation for why children seem to see things others can't? Here's an interesting article from the Paranormal Research Forum, Rick's blog. We tend to rationalize or dismiss children's unusual comments and stories, assuming it's an active imagination or desire for attention. Of course, sometimes this is the case. Quite often, something we are unfamiliar with or can't see or hear is taking place. Kids' imaginary friends are possibly some of the most common examples of an experienced reality taking place, so it would be prudent to hesitate before moving into our automatic rationalization mode. Much of the information about some encounters they are actually experiencing could include some embellishment, a little fantasy, or misinterpretation on their part, making it more difficult to consider seriously. A great number of adults are now beginning to confess that they have discovered later in their life so-called childhood imaginary friend or friends or actually extraterrestrial beings, human spirits, or beings from another dimension that they were interacting with. Unlike children, adults have had their minds filled with wild and crazy thoughts about most paranormal matters given us over many years. The uneducated information presented through movies, television, news media, friends, and family slants usually offer bigger separation from the truth than likely to be found in any other place. Keep in mind most of our exposure to any paranormal or supernatural topic is delivered through the mainstream media programming. The actual events so many individuals experience are frequently brief encounters and rarely repeat themselves. This makes the event even easier to ignore or rationalize and move on. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means we chose not to consider it or think about it further. Kids, on the other hand, aren't as overwhelmed with busy schedules and begin to notice things and try to interact with them. 
Again, children have a clean slate for unbiased exploration and discovery of any experience they are entering into. It's possible we have as much, if not more, to learn from them. Innocent curiosity recognizes more than the developed, predisposed intellect of the human adult. These young souls are learning primarily from personal experience, natural laws, and parental influence prior to exposure to mainstream, commercially driven cultural marketing. As parents, we are often so consumed by teaching our children about the world, we forget to discover what they can teach us about theirs. We have created an adult culture that values perception more than reality and are inadvertently passing on this illusional, economically driven value system onto the younger generation. Paranormal experiences exist and have always been evident throughout history. Continuing to ignore these unexplainable matters will ensure our stagnation in human evolution. Exploring these and other phenomena will open doors to human awareness and begin providing answers to some of our most provocative questions and supernatural experiences. Perhaps we will begin to understand more about human cycles, and this will eventually lead to uncovering who we truly are. Don't forget that our children's insights might just unlock those answers. You are listening to Afterwards Paranormal, the podcast that offers you dark tales from literature, lore, and you, the listener. If you are interested in contributing stories to the show, please stay tuned after the story for details. Eleanor Schlostein is 37 and lives in Derbyshire, England with her two feline accomplices, Pluto and Vert. She is a writer and collector of poems, essays, and stories. Her favorite hobby is handwriting short stories into the fly leaves of books before donating them. And now, The Bridge, by Eleanor Zillerstein. For all of those who have asked, I have very little to tell. All I can only say for certain is that it was something dark. A hunched, huddled shape, something like a shadow, glimpsed only for an instant from the corner of my eye. It stayed for a moment, like a smudge or an inky blur, on the very edge of vision, before, in a flash of thick black hair, it disappeared again, back beneath the bridge. There were three of us there that day, just like always. From the moment we'd met in a registration class on the first day of high school, right up to the day that he went missing, Dale and I, along with our mutual friend Robbie, had been virtually inseparable. To cut a long story short, any place you found one of us, you were likely to find the other two trailing close behind. Though, of course, on the day it happened, close behind was not close enough. My granddad used to call us the Three Musketeers, after the novel by Alexandra Dumas. We used to laugh about this, especially since we had only heard of the Three Musketeers from a kid's cartoon called Dogtanian. But I will admit that sometimes, when we were careening around the park on our BMXs, building dens in the local woods, or seeing off bullies by sticking together, we kind of did think of ourselves in that way. Three best friends in a tight little gang of heroes, all for one and one for all. 
Problem is, if you have a gang of heroes, you're going to need a villain. And what the cartoons and books don't tell you is that sometimes the bad guys win. We had all heard the stories, of course. The twice-told tales, fables, and folk tales that somehow crept into every playground, like weeds grasping up through the cracks in the concrete. Wherever you went, there they were, whispered in corners, at torch-lit sleepovers, or in the steamy damp of the school cloakrooms during some sodden break-time huddle. Somewhere along the line, you were bound to hear them. Those urban legends and modern myths were told as if they were true. Terrible things that the teller swore had happened to a friend of a friend. They all had the same pattern, these stories, and were you able to tear them apart and look at them piece by piece, you'd probably find they were made up of the same ingredients. Half-heard truths and pockets of rumor, warped by lies and exaggeration, stitched together with the clumsy fumblings of teenage hands and mixed with a snatch of ragged fragments torn from films and fairy tales to form a hideous patchwork narrative. A story made from a mash of others that felt like something new. Of all the stories told at our school, however, it was not a new one that stood out above all, but the oldest. The one about the bridge in the clough and the thing that lived beneath it. Even amongst the jostling crowd of hooked-handed men and crocs in the sewers, this story stood out, partly because it concerned a place we all knew and partly because of its age. You see, this story did not start with us and our friends, but with our parents and their parents before them. It was an old story, told to kids in our town for generations, repeated not only at schools and sleepovers, but also by successive generations of parents, all trying to ensure that their kids would obey and be sure to be back by curfew. Looking back on it now, I often think it was this last element that made the story stick for us and what made it far more terrifying. You see, with other monsters, it's easy to point and laugh. Whilst the creatures on the movie screen might scare you at the time, afterwards you can smile, safe in the knowledge that monsters aren't real. They're just men in costumes, your folks would say, actors wearing makeup. It's safe to laugh at them, because they are make-believe. But the thing beneath the bridge, though, it was different. With him, your fears were never dismissed. Instead, they were confirmed. He wasn't make-believe or an actor wearing makeup. Like all the best boogeymen, the power of this creature came from the fact that your parents sanctioned it. This monster, they told you, was real. When they told you as a child that you had to get across that bridge and out of the park by sundown, told you that if you didn't, you were just one minute late, then the thing that lived beneath it would take you away and eat you. They said it as a warning, but also like they meant it. Whereas at night they tell you there were no such things as ghosts, that monsters aren't real, and that to believe in them was silly. When it came to that bridge, it didn't seem so silly. He was the exception because he, they said, was real. Of course, looking back, I realized that there was a reason for this. The thing beneath the bridge was meant as a deterrent. The story that if you entered via the bridge, you had to leave by it and be out by sundown was a convenient way of making sure that any kids venturing into the park via the bridge in the morning were safely back across it and on their way home by the time the twilight came. The thing beneath the bridge, like some troll in Billy Goat's gruff, 
was a spook story meant to protect the kids from the very real dangers of being in the park at night. A boogeyman meant to scare us straight. I'm sure they assumed that by the time we hit puberty, we'd have forgotten all about the thing beneath the bridge and would just come home because we knew we had a curfew. What I didn't realize was just how deep that cut had gone. How that story reinforced every day when we sprinted or pedaled as fast as we could to get across and away stayed with us all and lingered, biding its time and waiting for the right moment to bite. What our parents couldn't have foreseen was how that threat, the promise that if you were not back across that bridge by the time the sun went down, you would soon be devoured, became a kind of game, a stupid teenage dare of the kind young boys always loved. Even as adolescents, age 16 and cocky as hell, we still played up to the myth pretending to each other that we still believed, or at least pretending to pretend. Pretending or not, we always ensured we were back on time. The bridge itself was one of the two entrances into the park we referred to as the Clow, a wooded area close to where we lived that had been a recreational space for kids and families for generations. It was made from stone, was slightly arched in the middle, and spanned across the small valley that led down to the stream separating the park gates from the main wooded area. The idea in our game was to cross it in the morning, spend the day riding around in the woods, and then when the time came, dare each other to stay for as long as you possibly could on the wrong side of the bridge. After crossing the bridge with no problem earlier in the day to access the park, we would hang around till the clouds began to turn pink, slyly egging each other on to stay longer, and longer. There was no question of any of us remaining until after sunset, not only because of the threat of the thing, but because being in the park after dark was not a good idea, not to mention a grounding offense. So as the sun began to slowly descend, we jump on our bikes and race, hurtling as fast as we could down the hill that led to the bridge in a desperate attempt not to be the last to cross it. The idea wasn't just to stay in the park but to get safely across before sundown whilst cutting it as close as possible, getting across with only seconds to spare. That was the adventure. Whether any of us really believed in the possible consequences of not making it across wasn't important. The point was that we all pretended it was real. Accepting at face value the idea if we didn't make it across, we were done for. An idea made all the more potent by real-life events. In the five years that I attended the local high school, at least eight people, four of them kids from that very same school, vanished without a trace in our town. Three were adults, a pensioner named Jim Gross, who was a regular at the pub my dad drank in, Marjorie White, a young teacher at one of the local primary schools, and Andy Turton, a young lad in his early twenties who was supposed to be going off to university but instead disappeared into thin air. Of course, there could be logical explanations for all of these cases, and even for the kids. They might have run away, been kidnapped, or been victims of some kind of nasty accident. In the folklore of the playground, however, there was only one explanation. All of them had ventured out into the clough and had come back too late. In our retellings, they had wandered back just as the sun went down and had heard somewhere behind them a faint scratching sound, or perhaps the sound of hooves clacking the stone behind them. 
Then they were gone, dragged below by taloned hands, by a thing covered in wiry hair that would rip and chew through flesh as it cracked and ground the bones. That's why, we'd say, no trace was ever found, no clues for the police to hunt, no trail of evidence. They had all come back too late, had all gone beneath, and all had been devoured. The day Dale disappeared, he vanished without a trace. Not here today, gone tomorrow, but vanished in an instant like a cheap magician's trick. One second he was there, then suddenly he wasn't. You see, in real life, it isn't like the movies, where the monster crashes with a deafening bang or stalks its prey as violins stab and slash behind. In real life, when a predator comes to claim its prey, when evil reaches hungrily up to snatch with taloned hands, it does so very quickly and in almost total silence. We had raced, as we had every day for years, down the hill and round the bend, freewheeling over the bridge and up on the other side, panting through a mix of laughter and jeers and were pedaling ever homeward. Only this time, it was different. This time, we waited too long. As Robbie and I streamed up the opposite bank, shouting and hollering for Dale to come, but never stopping to even look back, the air around us changed. Maybe it was the cold, the icy electric crackle of a chill autumn night, or perhaps the fact that just this once we'd allowed the sun to sink and the dark to pool around us. But something, something was different. It was Robbie who pulled up first. Talking about it later, he said he didn't know why. Perhaps he had noticed, even if not consciously, that our three voices had somehow turned to two. Perhaps he was used to Dale taking the lead or preferred to be at the back. But for whatever reason, he slammed on his brakes so that I had to swerve and narrowly avoided him. Before I could collect myself and ball at him for stopping, he was already looking behind me, calling Dale's name and getting no answer. I remember dropping my bike, turning back toward the bridge and expecting to find Dale streaming back across it with a stupid smirk on his face, knowing that he'd killed the myth once and for all. Instead, I saw nothing, just the bridge, stony and solid, on top a space that looked not so much empty as vacant, as if only moments before someone or something had occupied that space, but was now conspicuously gone. Robbie and I looked at each other and swallowed hard. I called Dale again, but rather than a voice, only the rustle of half-dried leaves rose up to greet me. I waited, allowing the silence to bleed out and grow as the sky above grew darker and darker. Eventually, I told Robbie that we would have to go back to check and see where Dale had gone, in case, I remembered saying, he's fallen in the stream, slipped off his bike and cracked his head. Robbie, though, refused to move. Instead, he simply stood there, gently shaking his head, stubborn, obstinate, and terrified. I left my bike where it was. Slowly, cautiously, I made my way back down the hill and toward the bridge. I remember clearly how all around me the too sweet smell of rotting leaves, of moistened soil, and dampened wood rose up to greet me. As if that one sense were trying to fill the gap, compensate somehow for the sudden stop in another. For all I heard was silence. 
Still I listened, calling out for Dale. I glanced back at Robbie, who was still rooted, firm to the spot and still shaking his head. Then the sound came. I've tried many times to convince myself that sound was a breaking branch. A twig snapped underfoot as Dale ran away or some other animal scurried from my path. But many times, I've failed. The sound that came was not a branch, but a low, wet snap, followed by strange, liquid ripping that I hate to recall and hate even more to imagine the cause of. It was then, looking toward the other bank, that I saw something move. To this day, I know that if I was given a pen and paper and asked to draw what I'd seen, the image would not be clear. So fast and so indistinct was that flash of something that I still find it hard even to describe. Yet I have not a single grain of doubt that there was something there and that that something was not Dale. I ran, turned back towards Robbie, jumping on my bike and pedaling away faster than I ever have in my life. Back at home, I screamed to my parents, almost in tears, that the thing beneath the bridge had gotten Dale. At first, they tried to laugh it off, as if I was trying some kind of prank. Soon enough, though, they saw that I was serious, and I watched their faces drop. It was at that moment I realized they were frightened, too, saw that their own parents had scarred them with stories, had told them when they were young that the thing beneath the bridge was as dangerous as it was real. Despite his fear, my father, alongside Dale's parents and a few others, went down to the clough. Torch in hand, he descended the bank on the entrance side of the bridge and scrambled down towards the stream. He did not find Dale or even his bike, but he did come back with a look on his face that will haunt me for the rest of my life. I never saw Dale again, and within six months of his disappearance, both Robbie's family and my own had moved away from the area. Around a year ago, shortly before he died, my father shared with me what he'd found beneath the bridge that day. It had been years, he said, but he remembered it as if it was yesterday. What he'd seen, he told me quietly, were footprints, larger and wider than any man's, barefooted and evenly spaced, trailing in the mud all along the bank. They were, according to him, more like the prints of a bear or a dog, having as they did the marks of claws at the end of every toe. Worse even than this, however, was what he found beside the tracks, a long, thin, uneven streak, a trail or rut carved through the mud, as if whatever had been walking there had dragged something heavy beside it. Do any of you have any childhood paranormal experiences that you would like to share? I would love to hear about them. Please send them in to afterwardsstories at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to Afterwards Paranormal. I've been your host, Shelby. And as always, I leave the last words for you. Thank you for listening to Afterwards Paranormal Podcast. Please join us on Patreon and Facebook. You can listen to Afterwards Paranormal on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Contact us at afterwardsstories at gmail.com. And remember, the need to be heard never dies. Thank you.